Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. We are delighted to be doing like a mini little book club today. But first, Caitlin, how are you? Hello, Michelle. I am good. I am, that sounds so fake, but no, I'm feeling pretty good. (laughs) You just got locked out of your house. (laughs) Yes, I did actually. Okay, so yes, I forgot my keys this morning when I left the house, obviously. And I had to wait for my aunt to get home to let me in. But and then I walked in and I thought my keys are going to be like right there next to the door and they weren't and then they weren't in my room and then I was like crap where are they and they were on the dining table. I thought you were going to say you had them with you the whole time. No thankfully I didn't that would have been even more annoying but you know when those things happen and you're like how did my keys end up on the dining table like why how did they get this far into the house even you know. Yeah. 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 Like when you're like, why are my glasses in the bathroom? I don't need them in there. You know, like it's so weird. Anyway. I um I hate I hated living in a house where we just had one of those um our front door, as you know, our old house used to be just like pull it and it locks because that is how you lock your keys inside. Whereas 100%. like in England and, you know, other houses where you literally physically have to lock the door, you always have your keys because you can't lock the door otherwise. Like it just. It makes so much sense. Remember, like there were times when I didn't have, I forgotten my keys and we had to sit outside waiting for Jack to come home so we could get in and record an episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> I remember one time we were sitting there waiting and we started watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on my phone. <laughs> get the wi-fi yes (laughs) anyway crisis averted you are home you're inside exactly we're here recording we're doing a book club michelle tell everyone what we read this week so i have been bossing caitlin around a little bit with picking our book clubs because these are books that have been on my shelf for a while and i was like caitlin i just want to read them before we have to ship them back to Australia. (laughs) Um, So I have been a little bossy with that. Um, And I promise next time Caitlin will pick more of the books. But this is Expectation by Anna Hope. And it is about three women. Hannah, Kate and Lissa are young, vibrant and inseparable. Their shared world is ablaze with art and activism, romance and revelry and the promise of everything to come. They are electric. They are best friends. Ten years on, they are not where they had hoped to be. Amidst failing careers and faltering marriages, each craves what the others have. Each grapples with the same question. What does it take to lead a meaningful life? Can I just say, as I got to the end of reading this, I was like, I definitely feel like we have moved into an older reading section of our lives. Like we are, we still read a lot of uh, We still read a lot of YA for this podcast and we love YA and we champion it, but I also feel like we're slowly creeping more into like less YA and more what is the meaning of my life sort of books like this. I know. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean because when I was reading this and I was 
trying to explain the plot to um, a friend at work who mainly reads fantasy and I was like, well, compared to your current read, mine sounds super boring because it's just about people. Um, But I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, it's kind of like Adults by Emma Jane Unsworth, Olive by Emma Gannon. I haven't read these, but I think it's in the same sort of space as Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, even Grown Ups by Marion Keys, I think is a bit in this space. And I was like... Which fun fact was our other pick our for other this option. week? Yeah. Expectations. It's long. Um, yeah, this was shorter. <laughs> but it's like... Yeah, and I was like, I have read a lot of those recently, you know, in the past, like, year or so, and you're right. Two years ago, I I wouldn't read a book about three 36-year-olds who are a bit stuck in their lives. I'd be like, boring. Yeah, and, like, I am a few years older than you, but even I, like, two years ago, three years ago, wouldn't have found this book interesting and it came recommended by another friend and then since then I've had three or four other close friends say yeah you should read it it's really good um but yeah definitely as I was reading it I was like oh my god I am entering a different phase of my reading life where I find this really fascinating because it touched we still we still you know as you said we still love all those other books that we've always loved and always will but it then it's like adding this in now like you don't yeah. have this when you're I would have found this very boring a few years ago yeah. but now I'm like oh my god it hits close to home yeah I don't know and <laughs> even what, hearing you talk about it I think you liked it more than I did and that doesn't often happen with our barely two-year age gap so yeah and I wonder too if it's because of where I am literally in my life right now, which you about know about to make another people... move. Engage. Yeah. I... <laughs> I actually didn't even think of that, to be honest, because I was thinking of like the whole idea of, you know, being settled and then having everything unsettled again. Because yes, I knew we were only going to be over here for two years, but I didn't feel expect it to feel like home and I didn't expect it to feel as settled as we have. And it's almost like um because we haven't travelled as much because of lockdown. Yeah, you I really feel just more there. settled. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like it's like when they joke about like on Love Island, like three weeks in the villa is like three months on the outside. I feel like you know it kind of is like that because you're not doing anything else seven months in lockdown in our lovely home is like three years of living in our other house like I feel really settled and I feel like my whole life is changing and that feels really unsettling and it also is that question of like I think something that comes up in this and something that comes up in Olive is those like what could have been and we are getting to the point now where things do start not being a possibility anymore. And I think there's a part of that, like in, it might even be at the start of this book where they say like, um, yeah, I've just opened up to it. And it says they still have time to become who they are going to be, but it feels like we're getting to like that mid twenties point where certain decisions you make are like, you you can't necessarily go back on that. Okay. It's actually going to affect the rest of my life now. Yeah, like yeah. you must have felt a little bit like that when you moved to Sydney. Well, yeah, it was because when I moved here, you know, it was like, okay, 
if I move to Sydney now for this job now, I kind of feel like I'm going to end up. You're not coming back. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to live here and hopefully live here and work in this industry for the rest of my working life. So yeah. now I'm and here. I think, the only other place, I think the only other place you would move is potentially Melbourne or potentially overseas. Oh, potentially I still think that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I still see you as working in that industry. I hope so. And I just think it's like when you look back on those moments and a book like this sort of makes you think, oh, my God, yeah, like everyone, because it does feel so personal to us, but everyone goes through these moments in different ways. And that's yeah. why I think the beauty of having Olive was amazing, but I think the difference with expectation is we get the perspectives and the thoughts of three different women, whereas in Olive, we were just in Olive's was, head and we knew it was, that it was kind of things the main character on. projecting onto her friends a bit. Yeah. Like we knew what they were going through, but it was all through Olive's perspective. Exactly. So our rainbowing yeah. might make a bit more sense if we just say a bit <laughs> about each of the three main characters yeah. in this novel. So the first one, Lissa, um, is an actress and, you know, kind of a struggling one at that there's other references throughout the novel of her working as like doing some modeling and um in a call center center, kind of like bits and pieces jobs here and there and if we've been dropped by her agent yeah she's just been dropped by her agent but she got a um like a like a good part in a highbrow sort of fancy play and so she's, you know, in the corset and she's like, I can do this. Um, and then the yeah. second that plays over, she's like, oh, crap, I can't do this. And, like, full spoilers, by the end of the novel, she is, like, really ready to give it up for good and is saying that she might become a teacher um, instead and is ready to make a big move for several reasons. Mm, um, which we won't we won't spoil those won't but... spoil entirely but yeah um and They're then yeah and then so that's Lissa and then Hannah is some kind of executive I forget fully I think maybe she's a lawyer I don't even know whether they fully go into it a corporate, she has a corporate some kind job. of executive corporate fancy job and she is married to a man named Nathan and they have been together for like a decade and married for a couple of years and they're desperately trying to conceive and are in the book, I think, doing their second round of IVF. Mm. And, then, and for Nathan, it's like that would be the last round of IVF, but obviously that's yeah, not how Hannah feels. Really so there's a lot of tension there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then Kate, the third friend, is has just moved um, away from London I don't know how far away Canterbury is I don't really know either because I don't really know the south yeah. I don't know the south <laughs> yeah I think you know like a couple of hours out of London or something like it's mm. it's not far but she's not close by anymore and she has a little baby a little boy six months ish or something and yeah. she has only been with her husband and the baby's father for a couple of years so it's quite a short relationship to get married and then have a baby so she's still feeling a bit unsure so I think for her she still has this lingering like is this the way that my life was meant to work out or not and she's moved away from 
her close friends and she just feels really alone. Yeah, closer and to her like, husband's family. Um, yeah, and she feels a bit like they're maybe a bit overbearing and, yeah. you know, I think I think it the, all the happens thing... so quickly. So she, I think she's, I think kind of her, her main storyline, though it's not really said, I don't think, is did I settle, you know? Yeah. So yeah. She's and at one point her. he says to her, like, I'm not here to be like your option B or whatever. Like I chose to marry you, not just because we were having a child, like I want to be with you. So I'm just not your settling option. Yeah. And and so of course I, I that's think... in parallel to Hannah, who's been with Nathan for years and years and years and years, and they are struggling to have children. And then And I think that the story that comes through, so Hannah and Lissa have been no, sorry, Hannah and Kate have been friends since they were children. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, Kate got into Oxford and Hannah didn't. And then Kate had a mental breakdown and couldn't. And I think Hannah sort of sees like Kate getting the things that she maybe thinks that she deserves. So, oh, she easily had a child, but she didn't necessarily plan it. I think she feels that it's unfair that she's done everything. She's ticked all the boxes that you're meant to tick in life. And yet she still can't have a baby. So there's this tension between them because obviously that's all unsaid. And I do think the beauty of this book is that there is probably within these three women, there will be parts of their personality that most people will be able to relate to something in that. Like most of us as women will either go through this or have friends who have gone through elements of this. And I think that's the beauty of the way that this is told. So the other thing is it's told sort of partly through flashbacks and then in the present day and the flashbacks teach us things like about their interaction. So when Hannah meets Lisa at university and, you know, she's this very like yeah and and Kate fears that you know like this is taking Hannah away from her and stuff and yeah they really paint from Hannah and Kate's perspectives they really paint Lissa as like that cool girl that you're just like she's so awesome I really really want to be friends with her she's cultured and she's beautiful and she's talented and all these and her family like her mum's an artist and she calls her by her first name and she's just really cool and like um what's the word very like you're just very chilled laid yeah. back you know the sort of mom who would be like yeah come smoke weed with me like that's the sort of thing like she was an activist and she's a painter and all this sort of stuff so I think they look at their you sort of do get a sense that they're from that very like constrained middle class household where you do certain things and you achieve certain things and then that's your reward like in life and it's just come from, they've come from a different sort of perspective. And I think that's always fascinating yeah. as well. I particularly found that interesting with the character of Hannah, because Hannah, as we said in the book, is trying to conceive and she's, you know, she's been married for a couple of years. This is like the life plan. And in the flashbacks as well, we kind of get that backstory that whatever Hannah does for a living or whatever she did at university, she worked for a really like, big company you know a high paying job for a couple of years and it was like I thought you wanted to change the world and she's like yeah but I need money and then you know with some experience behind her now works at some kind of non-profit or something you know is doing the good thing with the work that she did after she 
uh, the money from the evil people or whatever it may have been <laughs> to like buy a house and pay for a nice wedding and you know like she's done everything right in yeah you know in all their yeah, eyes like, yeah right what what you're meant to do whereas Lissa for example you know is still renting the house share flat where she used to live with Hannah and Kate when they were all sort of in their early 20s and she's still very having this very bohemian lifestyle you know Mm. she's barely getting by with her you know her rent and stuff like that and I think there seems to just be this weariness about her of like she's just like I don't want to do this anymore like not even that I don't think I'm a good actress because everyone says after the play, like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. You've yeah. never been better, all this sort of stuff. But she's just but like, it's I just don't. Too hard. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's a really fascinating look at just characters and different women. And I do think it's probably suited to a, to an older audience. Um, yeah, I think just, it probably. Like, I literally would not have cared. Or I think the thing is maybe I just wouldn't have thought that these things would happen to me if mm. I read this a few years ago. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm so in between because I I really did like elements of the book and I think I liked the beginning of the book more like maybe like the first half or something like that and then kind of as it kept going and as it you know was getting to the end and I rarely ever say this but I felt like I wanted more of a resolution the like life goes on sort of thing wasn't really enough for me and as it kept going and it was getting towards the end you know these things that the three girls have been dealing with kind of how they're all resolved individually and together I was like, ugh, I don't know. I, I no, was a bit, it felt really realistic. It like was, that, it I, was realistic. Yeah. But I, I don't that know. I was a bit it. sick of it by the end, to be honest. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, for me, I was like, that is the sadness of it. Is that that's how, that's how it probably would pay, play out. It's exactly how it would play out, and maybe that's why I just don't like it. I'm like, I wanted to be more hopeful, but. Yeah, yeah, like I'm not saying I liked the how it yeah. ended, but I do. I was like, yeah, that's. I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's like when you when you reconnect with someone after a while, and um, in the moment you're like, oh my god, yeah, let's have coffee, let's do this. But sometimes, and I mean, maybe this is just me being a horrible person, but there is that moment as you say it in your mind, you are like that's not going to happen. We're not going to see each other again. Yeah. Does that, like, do you know what I mean? And there was a little bit of that element to this book where particularly when it got to the end and, and everything, I was like, yeah, you should have all stopped being friends a few years ago, which like, I feel horrible saying that, but like, I don't know. I feel like that's probably what they all actually needed. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes in friendships we can hold on too long mm. because we don't want to admit. It's like being in a relationship. I honestly think that women's friendships are way more complicated than romantic relationships. <laughs> like, Yeah, they certainly can be. There's a, there's a oh, lot going on. Yeah. But you're right. I think maybe that maybe that is what it is in this case is that, you know, like that you're right. They've been friends, two of them have been friends since childhood 
the other one get roped in at uni, at uni. They lived together in their 20s. It doesn't mean they can't be friends. I just think that they, I mean, that's the whole thing of the book, isn't it? They were holding on a bit to what they thought that they were going to be and what they wanted to be. And And I think it's interesting the way that the book is written in that we know that there is some tension at the start. We sense that, you know, them in the present day, they're not as close as they were because it starts with us being in that in that literally that summer that you wish could last forever moment where they are living this amazing life. And then, yeah, there's this sense that, okay, they have drifted apart, you know, and you sort of think, oh, maybe it's because Kate's in Canberra. But what's very clever about it is the way that those elements are eventually sort of revealed through flashbacks and stuff. Mm. So we get, you know, there was potentially an audition that someone didn't pass on a message for and that, you know, splits open part of their relationship yeah, and then exactly there's other there's like other you know clashes and, and, and fights and disagreements and awkward moments yeah. and things like that that we learn about as we go through a book that you're like oh yeah there's Makes been cracks sense. here for a while yeah and I, I just thought it was really clever the way that that was slowly exposed after you had made a lot of assumptions and sort of decisions about the way that they were behaving in the present day mm. and then to get that like oh flashback to holiday in Greece you know yeah you like okay now I understand this character's motivation a little bit more and I'm not saying I liked every character I really actually I don't there's there's bits I, really I liked disliked. and disliked all of them at different points in yeah. the book yeah and I think it's it's really well written in that sense and I don't know about you but I found it very easy to read like yeah. I immediately felt like I was in their head Oh, totally. You're there from the beginning. It really gets you in and, you know, you do get to know all three of them. I like that we get all three of their perspectives um, on on each other and on each other's lives and relationships. It's all, and it swaps quite a lot, which is really, really good. I really like that about it. Yeah. So each chapter sort of has the perspective of the three of them within that chapter. And then we get like a flashback and then we go again to the present day, but it swaps within the the present day chapter between all of them. And yeah, I really love the way this book was structured. I think um, Anna Hope is a beautiful writer. Yeah. And I think it's a really, it's a really beautiful book. Um, But yeah, just, just one that I would say is, I don't know, I guess you have to be in the right space. I think certain times, certain books are for certain times. And I still really enjoyed this book. It just, not every book makes your top five list of the year, you know? Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, I'd be interested, you know, if we revisited this in like two years, five years. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll feel differently. <laughs> it would be so interesting to see what we said. Um, yeah, I know. Well, because that is something, isn't it? Is that at that where the book starts and where some of the flashbacks go back to in that time in their 20s. It says they're 24. That's where we are now. I'm yeah, 24. like that's where we are. Yeah. yeah. I know. So Maybe we should read this book again in 10 years, Michelle, see what we think. Oh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely keeping it. It's one of the ones that I'm shipping back to Australia. I thought it was amazing. Um, and I, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone because I do think you have to be in the right frame, but I think mm. it's a really beautiful book and I am interested to go back and and read it again in the future and see how I feel about it. But it definitely is very evocative, um, even if you're not in 
in that space at the moment it just yeah it's really evocative and kind of melancholy as well yeah it's very steady which I know sounds a bit odd but it just it really goes on and nothing you know it's just day to day this happens then this happens then this happens and I know that that I'm probably making it sound boring but it's good in that way because it's just like something will happen and then something else will happen and it's you know there's the book isn't leading up to like their big you know yes fight or anything it's like a lot of little things and it really is just like a slice of life in that way actually it reminds me a bit of Queenie and the feeling I got reading Queenie as Mm -hmm. well by um Candace Carty Williams So I think that's a similar title as well, even though the issues are slightly different, but it's that feeling of like, it sort of left me a bit unsettled, but I really admired it. Yeah. Um, So yeah, a very different book this week for us to talk about. It is a bit. I'm trying to think if I have any other comps. I feel like Olive and Adults with like a smidge of Sauron Bliss just because I love it. Um, Yeah. It did have the same sort of vibe. Yeah. Yeah something yeah in there so you know if you like those books and there's plenty others that are everyone will know the others that are sort of sit in that space that maybe just you and I haven't read yet Michelle but they're on the list yeah yeah exactly well excellent without further ado let's get into our chat today um I'm glad we didn't do another this is an amazing feminist book because that's what our interview is all about yeah This week we're joined by an author whose debut novel has been described as gothic fiction with a feminist twist, perfect for fans of Madeline Miller and Margaret Atwood. Our guest worked as a teacher for eight years, teaching classics in the UK and English language and literature in Paris. She left teaching to write and we're so delighted today to be talking about her first novel, Madam. Welcome, Phoebe Wins, Better Words. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely lovely. Now, you're actually joining us from France at the moment. Yes, I am. Yes, yeah. Hopefully, you'll be able to come back to the UK and and see the book on shelves soon. Yes, I'm really really hoping that in May I can come back. It comes out on the um, 13th of May, and I really hope by then I'll be able to, at least some point after then, go into my local Waterstones and pick it up hopefully. I hope so too, because that is such a rite of passage, I think, for all authors. They, everyone wants to go to their local and see it on the shelf. So That's it. And I, I mean, I feel really lucky that the um, pandemic has been really hard on the industry, hasn't it? And um, I, I just feel so lucky that I haven't been too affected by it. And I'm just so grateful to be published at all, you know, so to yeah. see it, to see it in a bookshop will be incredible. Yeah. So it is a very striking book. Hopefully people will recognize it when they go into the bookshop. It's got a really bright red cover and it looks incredible. Um, I was absolutely enthralled by the story and I felt like this really underlying tension, like my muscles just tensing up as I read it and it just sort of builds this momentum throughout. Um, But can you describe the book to our listeners, please? So for me, um, Madam is, so it's about a young teacher and she um, takes on a new job at a very prestigious boarding school, all girls boarding school in Scotland. It's very well known. But when she gets there, she realizes that something's up 
And within that, it becomes clear that there's sort of like an overbearing enemy within the school. I don't want to spoil. Um, but she has to overcome that enemy. And um, she sort of recruits the girls um, to help her do that, to bring about its defeat. That's how, that's how I see it. It's so incredible and incredibly feminist. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Brilliant. With girls fighting back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything in particular that inspired the novel? I think um, there's lo- there's loads that have sort of gone into it, but I think in terms of literary inspiration, my main inspiration is Daphne du Maurier. I think she's incredible. <laughs> and because um, she wrote, obviously she wrote Rebecca, my cousin Rachel. She also wrote loads of short stories that are really, really dark um, and all fem- like maybe we wouldn't call them feminists, but they all have a, a female protagonist who does something. Um, it's a little bit alarming, a little bit spiky. For example, I, I don't know if you know that she wrote The Birds, the original story. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> Not like the movie. Um, That's a fun fact. Yeah. yeah. It's a short, she wrote it as a short story and it has a devastating ending. And um, I... I, I lo- what I particularly love about her is that she's melodramatic and se- sensational. And I actually taught Rebecca when I was in Paris. And I was so inspired by the kids' reaction to it. And they were, they were young, you know, these are like 14, 15-year-olds. And they were so, she's so good at attention. And, and they were enthralled. And these are foreign children learning English. It was, I just thought, I, I think what, I, what I'm trying to say is she managed to write um, literature for the masses, because we now see it as literature at the time. A lot of people didn't like her work when it first came out. I just think she's really inspirational, I think. And she didn't say much. We don't, like, if you read My Cousin Rachel, you don't, if you read Rebecca, you're not really sure. Rebecca's awesome. But, like, the pr- protagonist of Do We Feel Sorry For Her? Would you read My Cousin Rachel? What? Who was Rachel? Was it? Was she bad? Was she good? Yes. I it's think... so unsettling that you never yeah. have that resolution. And at the end, you're sort of questioning yourself, really. And you're like... The, I don't know. In the writer, you're like, do I, do I hate this guy? Who is he? And then I, I just, I really recommend if you read some of her short stories. And um, she was definitely my main inspiration, but I have so many, you know, like one of my favorite writers is Charlotte Bronte. I love Jane Eyre. And that's a very gothic novel. And I, I suppose another inspiration is Greek tragedy. It just, uh, as a student and as a teacher, I, I just, I, I love it. I think... I can't, it, it's, it's so compelling. It's always about human nature and the problems and struggle. And it's so compelling. And when I used to teach Oedipus the King, for example, it's such a great play. In fact, I, th- I put it in, Madam. <laughs> um, mm. the, or I've mentioned it at least. And I think one of my students, I think she was studying Othello at the same time. And she was. Com- we were comparing the two. And um, it was a lot of fun because Shakespeare's wonderful. I love Shakespeare, but he loved Greek tragedy too. And he borrowed a lot. And it was, it's so fun to Shakespeare. He populates his plays with amazing language and loads of characters, but Greek tragedy never has more than three characters on the stage. And the stories are quick. It happens in one day and they're short and well, not short, short, but they're punchy, you know, and brutal. And, uh, you know, the end of Oedipus, he realizes what he's done without realizing it and he stabs his eyes out because death is too good for him um he, he thinks death is peaceful and he doesn't deserve it so do you know what I mean so that really is, 
I'm not sure what that says about me, but <laughs> I, I mean, find those stories really, compelling. really compelling. Like they're, yeah. they're nothing yeah. if not compelling. So yeah. And there's a reason why, you know, hundreds of years later, yeah. we're still using that sort of uh, framework Absolutely. for a lot of storytelling. It's incredible. Exactly. I totally agree. And I think there's a reason Shakespeare regurgitated them in his tragedies. And I think, and added his own color. We, we keep doing that. You know, you could argue that I love the Marvel universe and you could argue that they are, you know, recreation of Greek gods and goddesses or, you know, obviously not, but in different versions, you know, of, I, I think that the Greeks had a lot of fun with it. Heroes and villains. It all kind of comes down to that, doesn't it? Exactly. And, um, yeah, exactly. Heroes and, and the Trojan War and things like that. And I think they were really good, the Greeks, at looking at raw human nature and why we behave and why, what, you know, who we are and philosophy. And, and nowadays, I think, I'm not sure we, we've complicated things. I think I don't really know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but it's true because, like, they don't have this modern society of, you know, smartphones and the next promotion and all this sort of stuff that's stripping it back to, like, human nature what makes us human why we act the way that we do how emotions rule us and make us make decisions like really that's at the heart of like every story that is told it's just that nowadays you add in all these other elements um you know and motivations for people at its heart if you stripped everything away it really goes back to those key things and actually as something I don't know if you've read Phoebe, their book, The Science of Storytelling by Will Store. But um, no, is that a recommendation? <laughs> yes, definitely. So, what he does is like looks at neuroscience and basically examines why we as humans are so drawn to story and then how you can. It is aimed at writers to write a better story based on, you know, the idea of the fatal flaw and yeah. and the the sort of the crack in the fatal flaw that is the spark of the story that that person's challenged so much in their view of the world. But the way that he does it is to look at things like he'll examine things like Star Wars or Remains of the Day is one that he sort of picks apart a lot. Yeah, so that's like it is... Again, and like Caitlin and I absolutely adore character-driven novels more than anything. We're not really that into fantasy or anything. We are, like, literally we always joke about the fact that, you know. That nothing happens in this book, but we loved it. (laughs) Like my partner in particular will always be like, he did it to me last night while I was finishing off Madam. He was like, so what's your book about? And I was like, um, (laughs) I mean, with this one, at least I had a bit more. But, you know, often it's just like, oh, there's a girl and it's her life and she does stuff and things happen. Um, but for us, it's that character motivation that that we love. And so the science of storytelling really is like, okay, why on a scientific level do we as humans like those types of stories and why is the character so essential? But it, it's brilliant to read as a reader to understand why you're drawn to those things. But then as a writer too, it's like, oh, okay, I get this. I get this. I can use this. To, to develop my characters in the future and stuff. So, yeah, if anyone hasn't read that, absolutely amazing. Um, but it is, it is it transcends so many things and it is quite incredible that in our modern world now, really, if you stripped back a lot of the stories, the movies, the TV shows, the books and everything, you would come back to that main thing. Like even something like I'm obsessed with Line of Duty at the moment, that just comes back to, like, motivations of, like, good versus evil. Yeah, and that's what it, your, yeah. It's, it's, oh, I believe the world, should, like, I believe so strongly that in this morality that 
I will put myself in danger to stop you because I don't believe that you believe the right things. Like it's just, yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. And I guess at our core, we haven't really evolved that as much as we think we have. And I don't think we need to. I think that we're doing a really good job with it. As I say, like Shakespeare adding colour to things. And there's there's so many gothic tropes in Madam, but I've added my own, as I say, colour. It's a good word to use to it telling my version of it you know we're all humans we're all individuals so it's it's fun to do that in celebration of of those things yeah yeah actually I've just thought of it just sort of something that's a little bit off topic from the questions that we had planned but um was there a reason that you decided to set it in the 90s outside all the you know smartphone technology and all that sort of stuff that we have now absolutely I think that was definitely uh, um I wanted it to be a time when I was alive. <laughs> um, All the pop culture references are brilliant. It. That was actually part of it. Part of it. So, um, nineteen ninety-two. I was uh, seven. So um, I was at school, and I remember things like um, Princess Diana and uh, Charles uh, divorcing. That was everywhere. Poor woman. She was couldn't. Wasn't outside of the press and things like that. And coming out of the Margaret Thatcher years. It felt like a kind of, like a, a certain time f- for me, and of course before smartphones and social media and things like that. Because if you're writing about teenagers, particularly teenage girls, I know them well. Like you, I needed to be be- before that time if it was going to be something that was believable, and and I wanted it to be more like a kind of a school that could have existed any time. Didn't have to be 1992. Could have been 1960 or 19. 19- uh, you know, 1892. Um, but it's a great era for film. I'm a huge film fan. You know, I, I as you say, yeah, my references are, you know, things like Thelma and Louise and um, Silence of the Lambs. It's a, it's a great, great era for women, actually. Alien, Batman Returns with Catwoman, with uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. It's a great time. But that is quite interesting, though, because, you know, Caitlin and I have had this discussion on the podcast before, of even when we were in high school, it wasn't fashionable or desired to say that you're a feminist and obviously now that we're we're completely uh we're we're completely changed um but I think it's interesting in the book as well obviously Rose comes into this school and she is you know and they do make reference to the fact she's quite a, a modern thinking woman and she has some strange ideas which now of course we're like well obviously men and women should be equal all this sort of stuff like it seems obvious so was it sort of easier in a way to set it in the 90s back when that was still somewhat of a controversial thing to like it, it was a bit more outspoken to to have these views about you know woman's right to her own body and things like that like it, it like you said like coming out of Thatcher and everything like it, it felt like a different time to where we are now I think now we've sort of moved beyond that I feel like more people are like yeah feminism like it's it's kind of <laughs> I don't want to say in vogue but yeah, it's sort of fashionable again. It's like, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think, I think um, it's funny because having spoken to my colleagues as I was sort of, you know, because I do a lot of research, um, to my old colleagues, there was a time in, in the 90s that people thought, okay, we've got, you know, the second wave of fem- with the in the 1970s, everything went really far, didn't it? It did really well, feminism. And I think when it got to the 90s, people became complacent. And thought, yeah. well, we've got equality now. Um, yeah, yeah, we fixed it. It's all That's over. It. Yeah, there was like a yeah. plateau, and then now there's a kind of reawakening. Perhaps you could 
say the Me Too yeah, movement. I think the reawakening yeah. is a better way to describe it. I'm sure and, I've heard um, someone refer to this sort of time as the third wave now. I think I've even heard, the reason I hesitate is I think someone I've heard people refer it to as the fourth. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I think there was a third, a, a third wave. I need to do my research. <laughs> um, I think there was none of us are feminist. I'm not sure scholars. where the waves are defined. Not a scholar. I've definitely done my research, but my I I love the, I'm like way back with the suffragettes. I think they're incredible. But um, yeah. But um, yeah. I think there was a third. I'm not sure. Let's we can email each other after this. <laughs> yeah, but, but there um, definitely feels like it feels like a collective like lifting again of this. You know, like I said, even when Caitlin and I were in our later years of high school it still was very much like oh I wouldn't say I'm a feminist like oh no that's a that's a oh that's not cool to be a feminist or anything whereas nowadays it feels like it feels like teenage girls are just so far ahead of where we were when we were dorky teenagers (laughs) and they're just like out there marching and protesting and doing all these viral TikToks and we're just we were like oh okay cool we don't want to call ourselves feminists because it's uncool so yeah it just does feel like feels different now yeah no I understand that I yeah I think there's still work to be done though isn't there I think of course absolutely but it is, I think you're right about the 90s being a bit of an interesting time to set the book with that sort of, oh, everyone else going, no, it's fine. We've, you know, we've fixed it. Also, it's just a great time for pop culture references to put everything in your camp, movies, music, Princess Die, all of it. I was also interested in, I love that problem of when you go somewhere and you enter into a, a world and you think that you, you know something and then everybody else is saying something different because she has been educated by her mother in that way. And she's quite a bright, I'm talking about Rose, and she's quite, she's bright and she's academic. And then she enters this world that she thinks that she can be part of. And then it just doesn't work because they're not, you could argue they're not as advanced as her, but then she doesn't know that. Because I, I really, I'm really interested in that for Rose because I do feel like, I don't know if you agree with me, but I do, I, this is a, I, this is not my saying, I've heard this, um, that men are taught to be somebody, whereas women are taught to find somebody. Mm. And Ooh, and I yeah, think yeah. we I think what she knows best is academia and and she's been taught you know to find something attach herself to something to create value whether it's a husband or you know and um, I think we all are without realizing it and I think she attaches herself to an institution she thinks it's safe and it's not and when institutions are rotten then you have to which is what happens in the novels you have to rescue yourself from that. And um, I was really interested in that for her. And I think it works. It works in the 90s because, for example, um, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but um, I think you're young, much younger than me. But when I was growing up, Bridget Jones was somebody that we laughed at. Um, and we were like, don't become like Bridget Jones. Um, yeah, sadly, yeah, we still. She I mean, was like sad and desperate. That's it, and like yeah. I mean, we. I was born. I was born in '94, so oh, we're yes, like so. younger than you, but like yeah. also we were still doing that when we were at so school. That's really like, interesting, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. It must have came. It came out when I was about 15 or something, maybe in 2000, and um, there was very much that mentality where you know it was like. Yeah, don't be like her oh my god she's 33 and um she's a and man. single oh the horror and, like... and then now in 2021 you think god, she's got a great job she's got a really nice flat she's got, five, she's got nice friends. friends yeah she's, i know she's killing it she's sexually healthy you know um exactly 
and she's not even that fat. <laughs> she looks great. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being fat, of course, but it's just yeah, that it's such, it. yeah. such a narrative in the thing, isn't it? And yeah. she, yeah, you build up this thing, but she's not fat at yeah. all. And I think, and her, oh. and her wish to find someone—that's what Bridget Jones is about. And I think that narrative is fed into us, you know. And I had a a, a really lovely book blogger write write me a message on Instagram, um, and she was like, "Oh, I enjoyed your book so much." Uh, I went to it reminded me of my girls' boarding school, except oh, I, I don't want to spoil, but but I'll say, apart from what was really going on, she said it reminded me of my school. Apart from that, and I said, "Yeah, but you know." that's a lovely thing to say I said but you know if you look at it metaphorically maybe we all were being trained for those things you know because I think in in some ways that we were yeah you kind of still are being trained in that because like I know you think about it and we do it to ourselves anyway because you know when you think about your own high school experience in comparison to books like Madam and other things like that and you think yeah but I voluntarily took home economics for like all five years of high school and so, like, now I know how to cook and so And I'm like, would that be a good life? Like, this is, we just all, <laughs> yeah. we do it ourselves still. Subconsciously. Even if you don't think it's as obvious. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's actually in, ingrained in society. I don't know if you um, ladies have read Mary Beard, Women in, Women in Power. Uh, yes, Obviously, I'm I have. a massive classicist yeah. fan, so I love Mary Beard. She's a, she's a very famous classicist in the UK. Um, she makes really good documentary. She's actually sorry. She's a professor at Cambridge, but she makes BBC documentary. She's great, and she, you know she does a podcast, she does a TV. She's doing really well, isn't she, Mary Beard? She's, she's yeah, she just had a TV. She just had a TV series not long ago, didn't she? So. It was airing on BBC. Yeah, yeah, and um, she's just a great thinker. Obviously, she's a brilliant woman, yeah. and she she had published two lectures that she did. And it was around the Me Too movement. She she just published it in a very slim volume called Women in Power. It's beautiful. It's a great read. Yeah. And she her point was that like um sorry to make that noise. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. But it's quite bleak. Um that mm. our society is so heavily based on the classical the ancient world, which it is, West the cradle of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Western, Western civilization, and um, and it's so ingrained that women is the second citizen, right from then. That the only way to, to really get past it is to have a cultural reset. She was like, "I'm not sure how how that's how possible. we do that." Yeah. yeah, and it I really just really you know you feel it in there in in your in your chest, don't you? And I think, oh, cause yeah, when you think like. We can, I know, she's got a point. How are we ever going to fix it? We're never going to fix it. We're never going to be able to actually, you know, you think obviously so much good work has been done, but there's still so far to go. I think there's so much, yeah, yeah, there's so much to do. And and I think, you know, like Virginia Woolf, was it in 1910? It was definitely 100 years ago. Some, she said, um, what was the quote? I've actually written it down. We're not as... Well, I can't remember what the quote is, but she she says um, something like, in 100 years, it won't matter if you're a male or a female writer. You will just say that you're a writer. And it's so depressing to... Maybe it's not depressing, but for me, I, I just find that wounding. I think, oh, we're not as far as she's expecting. 
that we would be. We've let her down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love Virginia. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, so I think, I think, look, you know, it's important to donate and, and protest and do all those things and, and, you know, fight for changes in the law and fight for better education of the young and all those things. And that is what I, I move towards. And I, whatever I feel, I put it into my writing. So that's what I can do. But I do, I do, I do worry about <laughs> the state of the world. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Us too. We do worry about yeah. that. But um, as you've just so wonderfully said, you put all of that into your writing. So maybe I'll just switch this conversation up and ask you about your journey to publication. So how did you, you quit? I think Michelle said you quit your job as a teacher to write so then how did you go from that to actually your book being on the shelves very soon? Yeah, so um, interesting you talked about the science of storytelling. So I've always wanted to write. Um, I, love, I love teaching. I actually think it's the best job in the world because you communicate with young people and just great different brains and really fun. But I, I, I had turned 30 and I had some savings and I was like, you know what, why don't you take a year? You know, no mortgage, don't have kids. Like I was like, okay, just take a chance now. I did. So I took a year and I thought, so I'd already written two novels in my 20s that weren't any good. And I'm totally happy to admit that they're, that they're terrible. They will never <laughs> see the light of day, but I had to get them out. Yeah, you just have to practice. So so during that year, I, I, I studied, I went, I, I did writing classes, I bought all the books. I didn't read that one there. So I will. <laughs> and, and like a musician learning their craft, you know, yeah. learning the fingering or learning how to play the violin. And I luckily, my sister, well, both, well, most, a lot of my family's in the film industry. And I went with one of my sisters to Los Angeles for three months. Um, and I did writing classes there. I helped her with their kids and uh, I, I took writing classes. And it was probably one of the best things I ever did because the attitude in America, well, I'm, I'm generalizing, the attitude in Los Angeles that I met with was incredible. Like the encouragement and I didn't know what I wanted to write, but I, one class I did every Sunday, which was brilliant, was um, a prompt. They give you a prompt, and then you write for 15 minutes, and then you read it aloud. It's only like six people in someone's sitting room, wow. and then it's constructive criticism. So, oh, okay. And then you do that repeatedly over like two and a half hours. And then if you do that week after week, you find out, first of all, your writing voice, and then you find out what you're trying to say. And I kept writing about the schools I taught in, all the characters I'd met. And I was like, well, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I keep coming back to tell me something? <laughs> I was like, yeah. that's such a weird, no one wants to hear that. But you know what? They did. And people in the class were um, so encouraging. Like, they were like, oh, my God, it's a boarding school. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I feel like Americans love, like, British boarding school culture yeah. as well. There's something about a British boarding school. It's so interesting. But what what was an amazing lesson for me was that I I I what I, to me felt very normal because that's just where I'm from. Mm. I went to boarding school as a kid, and I, I it was very interesting. I thought, okay, there's a story here. And then um, I was going to a different class, and it was about novel pulling a novel together. You know, structure, characterization, um, three act. You know, um, plot structure, anything. And um, somewhere in that in that time, uh, I think one of my sister's friends said the word gothic to, because the ideas were already there, but she gave it a name. She just sort of said gothic, and I was like, 
oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah and um and it's funny how things germinate I don't know if you're the same when things you put something in here it goes Mm -hmm. in your brain and and um and then I saw the ending first as you read it so you know the ending so I was like okay how do we get here um (laughs) and yeah what leads up to this that's it so and it just it came out so fast I can't tell you I wrote the first draft probably in about eight weeks really fast but like you said like all those ideas have been rattling around in your head you've been writing snippets you've been sort of building it up so yeah I guess it's like a bit of a like a pressure situation where once you're ready to sit down and write it just all comes out yeah Yeah, it is funny actually someone I work in publishing Phoebe here in Australia and um but someone else said to me recently that they have to completely think through a book think about the whole thing for like months and months and months and then they just sit down and write the whole thing like in one go really really quickly which Mm. I think is quite amazing and I'm very impressed that you did that because I feel like so many people start and stop and revise and go and just like are writing for so long before it all kind of comes together I think yeah I think it depends on the writer because I know other writers who who start, who have an idea of a man at a train station and then go with it and it turns into something wonderful. But for me, if I'm honest with you, I think my thoughts are wild. So, for example, when I used to write really, really bad poetry, <laughs> um, <laughs> like at school and university, um, I, I gave myself the sonnet form because my ideas are like, I would write like 50 lines of poetry if I could. But then I was like, nope, discipline. And, and it's better if I give myself 14 lines, 10 syllables. And I think with that, within the three-act structure, I'm like, okay, this needs to have midpoint, you know, inciting incident. I really, I need that. Otherwise, I'll write pages and pages and pages. You know, for example, I did, I did write loads and loads of lessons for Madden that I had to cut out because I'm like, nobody cares this much. Um, <laughs> but um, you have the curriculum planned out, so that's if it. we ever want that, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when I say I wrote that first draft really fast, I I then you know obviously my second draft took me longer, much longer because I took real I took real care and time with that one. And um, sorry, I haven't mm. finished answering your question, have I? Um, so then I reworked it, and then um, I was actually it's a it's a funny story. Um, I went to a seminar for how to meet an agent so that was probably September so that was the beginning of my year two um and I had just taken on a job for a tea company and uh, started working for them four days a week doing admin and things like that and um yeah and we also love tea this is this is tea and books what could be better that's it Rose loves tea. Well, well, I mean, you are, you are, like you said, you're like half British, half French. So, I mean, the tea has to come in there. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I went to the seminar and actually really, it was in London and because uh, in England, I, I'm from the sort of near Brighton, the South. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, got the train and, and it was this seminar with four agents and it was, I, I found it wildly depressing because... Um, they talked about how there was a trend for uplifting literature. I think Eleanor Oliphant had just been doing really well, which personally, I love that novel. Yeah. So uplit. And I was like, what is uplit? And then I was like, oh, is there any space for sort of Greek tragedy, catastrophic ending? And they were like, "Mm, send me, send me (laughs) Mm. this. And I was like, "Mm." (laughs) 
everyone dies the end that's not the end no. of the book I'm just kidding I'm just kidding but yeah but not not like a finding herself and like it. having fun and ah and, and I love those books I need those books but that's unfortunately not what I write so um <laughs> so I I went back and I was actually quite deflated and I thought what am I going to do with this uh monster that I've written and my sister same sister she's a lot older than me and she was like for god's sake make a list of the your favorite agents make a list of five and send it just to them and see how it goes so I had my little list I made my little list and I did I was I wasn't wasn't brave enough to um send it really yet but I saw a tweet my agent Nell Andrew and she had put a tweet saying looking for female-led female-driven dark narrative and I was like (gasps) and I wrote to her straight away and I was like I've got this I've been sitting on this have a look and straight away she was like within I think 24 hours she was like send me the whole thing and then yeah within a few days she was like are you free next Tuesday or something I was over the moon because I don't know if you remember me by saying I had written two really bad novels in my 20s I had sent them to sort of 30 agents each and been either ignored or flatly rejected of course so to get a positive from my first attempt the first try yeah oh it was meant to be that's it. Yeah, I really feel that way about Nell. I think she's incredible. Yeah, she's an incredible agent. And she just grabbed it with both hands. She was really excited. And then we had a, a re I had a rewrite with her notes. And then um, we sent it out about several months later because it took me a while to do the rewrite because I was working again. Oh, well, then, yeah, well, then she sent yeah. it out. And then um, the I was really lucky. got the American deal and the UK deal soon after. And I've got, and so it, it's, it's two books. So I've got the same editors and they're brilliant, amazing women. I'm so lucky. I've got these three women, Nell and then Emma and Sarah, Emma um, Capron at Quercus and Sarah Canton at St. Martin's Press of Macmillan in America, in New York. And they're just incredible. And, and what's amazing is, so obviously with the writing classes, I'm a huge fan of feedback huge right I, it's so hard to begin with you're like oh how dare you criticize my work um but then it gets easier and you start to listen and it's helpful what is incredible to me is their notes you know for edit they make it better of course they do and it's yeah it's even though it's it's my story it's my words my choices the the way that they i'm, I'm just so in awe of them i think yeah i just think it's incredible um editors and publishers are very special people they really are and even the the marketing department of both publishing houses they've been incredible i'm just astounded because i'm from i'm from academia you know and uh, you know as i was saying when i was in los angeles i was for the first time in my life surrounded by creatives actors and screenwriters and because my sister's husband is also in the industry and my nephew is an actor and it was really interesting and really wonderful to use those different and and then I'm interesting to them because I've come from a different world too so it's a it was a really fun cycle and uh and again with the publishing industry I really enjoy that too I think everyone's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) but I do feel so so fortunate that that it happened like quite electrically for me like with now and then with the deals uh, yeah, that is really, you know, I mean, we hear so many of these stories, obviously, on this podcast, because we love asking that question. But that is a really fun one that it was just it. everyone wants uplit. And then all of a sudden, it's like one person is like, I want a dark story. And you're like, hey! <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, it. And it all works. And I think I think the classics aspect has been really interesting, too. I think 
people have I've noticed people pick up on that as well the dark they love dark academia and the classic stuff I think but there's been a wave of uh since the me too movement there's been a wave of all these great novels that are leaning towards the feminist kind of for me I feel like Madame has a feminist punch um yeah and uh yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'm, I can ride that wave. I like that term, books with a feminist punch. I yeah. think that might be our favourite genre, Michelle. <laughs> yes, that is our favourite genre of film, TV and, of course, books. <laughs> yeah, always. Me too, me too. You know, um, one of my inspirations was um, just because of where you guys are from was Picnic at Hanging Rock, which t- yeah. I saw when I was really young and it stayed with me. <laughs> yeah yeah the, the girls, that's the, inter- the white dresses and the kind of yes. going into the rock and the, the music it's like really yeah it's really strong imagery isn't it like you just picture it every time someone says that and I picture it because I've driven past it a few times because <gasps> <Have you? laughs> it's like I think it's between Sydney and Canberra it's so interesting that you say that though because we um chatted to an Australian author Leanne Hall a few weeks ago and her book in that the girls are at school um one of their classmates has been abducted presumably murdered and the school decide to take picnic at hanging rock off the reading list but one of the girls because of that finds it in the library wants to read and he's reading it and making these parallels between and she she's sort of in parts of the book she's like looking around at her friends and thinking like i'm imagining them as the girls getting ready to go on this picnic and you know it's just it's so interesting that 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 book um is such a classic of the gothic genre probably a little bit underrated because it's this australian novel and it's even within hot. australia yeah even in yeah. australia is it under i absolutely adore i think so I mean, yeah it, i mean we didn't study it at school i think we should have yeah i think we should have as well i haven't read the book actually mm-hmm. i probably should but i'm i mean I'm, I'm talking about the film and it's so yeah so affecting and peter weir is that is the director he's Australian he's one of my favorite directors it's a classic book and then also when the film was made it was at, I believe it was at a point in time as well where there was a bit of a revival of Australian I might be wrong but there was a bit of a revival in these Australian stories and it might have been around the same time that they did like Man from Snowy River and I mean I could be completely wrong here and I, I should probably look it up but um my Brilliant Career as well as another feminist novel, um, very Australian feminist novel, which I didn't read until university. And it's as much as I think, yeah, it's great that we studied Pride and Prejudice at school. It is a bit of a shame that we as Australian students weren't studying these classics of Australian literature. Yeah, that, that's colonialism though, isn't it? Bastards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. But, but this does lead into you know we yes, wanted to ask about this classics because I actually I, I mean I didn't do many classics and everything at school and you know we said to you before that it's not really a big focus here but Michelle did you do Pride and Prejudice at school? That was the book that we studied in grade 12 English. Okay because I never did anything like that. I did a couple of Shakespeare, we did Hamlet in year 12 but our focus and the curriculum at my high school at least was Australian books but it was like the book thief classics wise I did Hamlet Brave New World and Frankenstein and those are the only ones I can ever remember studying at school Mm. see I think it would be amazing if they swapped out Pride and Prejudice for my brilliant career because it is essentially the same thing in terms of like 
I mean, I remember what we were speaking about in terms of Pride and Prejudice was the marriage aspect and the fact that a woman needs a man mm. for security and blah, blah, blah. And that is the central, um, Sabella in My Brilliant Queer, that, that is the central thing of does she kind of pursue life on her own or does she marry this man for the security of that? It, it just seems it seems a shame that, you know, we, we were studying... You can't do yeah, like studying that instead. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until I was in university that I read that and was like, oh, it's like kind of the same thing, but in the bush in Australia on a farm instead. Like, anyway, sorry, off topic. There, no, no, that's but, really um, interesting because I don't know if you've yeah. read Mad Woman in the Attic. It's like a huge tome, but it's brilliant. It's uh, two women and it's a commentary on loads of uh, classic novels. Wow, oh, okay. And cool. uh, one of the comments within it, which really stayed with me, is... Um, I love I love Jane Austen, but have I been trained to love Jane Austen? I'm not sure. Um, but uh, all of her heroines have to break themselves down in some way before they earn their man. It's a really valid point. If you look at someone like Emma, if I now think about when you were talking about Prime Prejudice just then, you, it sounds like the Australian alternative that you were suggesting is more empowering in that way. I think in some ways it may be. I mean, again, it's been a few years since I was at university now um and I haven't and be honest at university I was really rushing reading that book so I could (laughs) turn up to the it was one of those things where it's like you've got a week to read this big book and do all your assignments and all this other stuff (laughs) um but it it is I mean obviously the title my brilliant career it is looking at yeah yeah where where is your independence and it's set in like agency it's set in about yeah so it's set around the time of the suffragette movement I think it was at least written, I think, around the early 1900s. I can't remember if it's set then or if it's set earlier, but that's when it was published. There is, I think, this resurgence and stuff, but it's a shame that in school, in English anyway, you know, we did a lot of American writers. and. Um, but it's funny, though, because then I'm here on the flip side going, I've never read any Jane Austen. I've never read, <laughs> like, any of these other things because I wasn't assigned them in school because I was reading the book thief. it is it is funny how like just depending on I mean I never read before the movie came out like I know Marcus I know it was a big book but like it was years ago (laughs) it was massive it was massive before the movie came out though as well um but I remember it just by the fact that I wasn't they didn't have enough sets of books that I never read To Kill a Mockingbird because I wasn't in the class that got that book so we read I can't even remember what we read now, um, but we read like the other book because they didn't have enough book sets to go around. That's how small my isn't it school funny was. how, how yeah. that is that is shocking, isn't it? And I and isn't it funny how we're conditioned by 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 what by our education and as as a teacher as well. I also noticed how what you learn is also uh, influenced by whether you like the teacher or not. Um, oh, yeah, hundred percent. Whether you'll choose yeah. that subject, it's so uh, it's so fragile. <laughs> it um, is, it is, and that that yeah. has such an effect on your your career prospects in some cases. Because, like, Absolutely. I would totally say that my love of writing comes from the amazing English teachers I had, especially like my high school English teacher mm. was so incredible. Would I have pursued that after school? were that not the experience that I had? Because, you know, other people I speak to now that I help others write say things like, oh, you know, my teacher told me 
this I was never very good or whatever so is it again is it down to that encouragement of having that teacher who's like you're amazing keep going that you're like yeah actually I'm going to keep doing this like oh do you know what a positive reinforcement is something that I learned as a teacher is so important um and in fact one of the schools I took my first school which is a brilliant place my boss the head of department he was like why have so many people chosen latin GCSE GCSE is you know the exam at 16 and uh I was like oh I he was like, have you been telling them all that they're great at Latin? I was like, yeah. I was like, Latin's really hard. Of course, of course they're all great at it. Yeah, the fact that they can do it is amazing. Latin That's is incredibly hard. Yeah. But no, yeah. I wanted to say that, um, funnily enough, it, which totally chimes into what you're saying, at my school, um, when we were choosing our university, you know, what we were going to do next, our subjects, because I always I love books so much. Um, I was torn between English literature and classics, but my English teacher there were a couple of kids that were super, super bright, you know, um, knew all the words and laughed at all the right points in Shakespeare. And I was always slightly trailing behind. And uh, my English teacher said to me, you might love English, Phoebe, but it doesn't love you back. I've never... Oh, my goodness. Why, isn't it? I've never forgotten that. And yeah, as a 17-year-old, I'm, never, I'm 35, so I haven't forgotten it. But um, as a 17-year-old, then to go to my classics classroom where I, I was good at Latin, mathematically it made a lot of sense to me I loved the stories because it's not just Latin you study you study ancient history philosophy bit of art you know if you're studying the Aeneid you also learn about Dido and Aeneas and then you look at the mosaics of Dido and Aeneas you you might watch the Purcell opera that's based on Dido and Aeneas do you see what I mean it's a it's a world and there I was like well this is my obvious choice then and uh I'm so glad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm not grateful to that teacher. That was not a nice thing to say to a 17-year-old. But okay. um, I, I felt well, safe in classics. Madam certainly wouldn't exist in this form no. if you hadn't pursued classics like this. So, you know, it goes to show how that ripple effect in good and bad ways just kind of touches you throughout your life as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's funny that, my, for example, my classic class was smaller. Obviously, there was only five of us. So by that point, um, at, eight, at 17, 18. And I think as a young person, I was like really struggling. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll pick that, shall I? I'll go, that was a safer bet. And I felt, as I felt, as I say, like I felt safer there. And I am, I am grateful to that. I think, to be honest, if I'd chosen English literature, I probably would have switched at university anyway, because classics, I've always tried to, but it's always called, pulled me back. I started Latin at my prep school when I was about 10. And, uh, I, well, actually before that, I was obsessed with Asterix. <laughs> Oh, yeah, those, the comics. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. My dad was like, oh, but just bought me more and more. And he was, a, he was a sort of really kind of academic, kind of big reader, big thinker, my dad. And um, so anything I sort of had, a anything I enjoyed, any spark he saw, he just fed as much as he could. And uh, he was a teacher too, actually. So I, 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 I loved Asterix. And then I started Latin and I was like, God, this is great. You know, it, the words make sense and you have to like get the right ending. It was quite, as I say, mathematical it was always so colourful to me and I couldn't, I chose it for GCSE and I remember at school I was an art scholar, had a scholarship and I did English and French and then I couldn't, I couldn't drop Latin. So I had to drop my, I chose to drop my art scholarship so that I could carry on with Latin. And uh, it was really like a love affair. Like I just couldn't get away from it. At university it became just a pleasure because of the libraries and um, I did, you know, for example, I, I did, um, Latin prose, uh, Latin verse composition, which was sort of to write Latin poetry. And all the books, I remember the books I used to buy on eBay that were sort of really, really old, falling apart. 
And then there was one book I had, which was a Latin thesaurus. <laughs> if you're writing poetry, you need it. So you have like love and then amor, and then it would have all the other words you can use for love. And at the front of the book, this is how old it was, it said, notice to the boys using this book. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse and me? I'm like, oh, I'm allowed to use this book. I mean, that was like from, I don't know, Dickensian times. So, but um, no, I loved oh, it so much. That's crazy. But I have to say, my real love for it, I think the real moments for me were in teaching, was in sharing it. Because there's one thing to sit and study on your own with your brain, maybe with a friend. But then to actually share it and be like, oh, my God, let's go to Pompeii, you know, and um, let's go and see this Greek play. It's so great. It's it's so, I keep using the word colourful, but it's, it's so multi-textured and fascinating. And, and it feels very, which I've had a lot of people say that to me um, in my teaching years, it feels very alive to me. And it's fun to, to share that with students. For example, I have a great teacher friend and she wanted to teach the Iliad. But every time she read it aloud, she was like, I can't get past this language. But I was like, no, you have to read it aloud. You have to perform it a little bit because it feels familiar to me because I've been living and breathing it for so long, maybe. I don't actually really know what it is, but classics just feels so significant and yet accessible if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, I love the way you describe it as like a whole world as well. Like I never thought of Latin, I guess I just saw it as, a language yeah. not this whole world I can I can see why you're so in love with it yes it's so great it was fun I used to do a thing where I'd be like on the weekend look and look, see if you can find I was like classics is everywhere and people would see a watch a movie and they'd be like oh they used to reference to a Greek goddess or you know oh I, it, you know I saw an inscription on a building in the city or I just think the influence of it is everywhere it, we we can't escape it it's great but I do feel lucky that it was offered and as I said I think there is like a British snobbery about the classical education. Everybody should have a go at Latin. You know, my peers, we all had access to it young. And then obviously then they filter out as you get to exam years. You only really pick it if you if you want to do it. So the classes end up being small. It's wonderful. But I do, I do notice, you know, there's programs. There's uh, Mary Beard has done an amazing job to make it more accessible to people and make the work and just tell stories and... I, I hope, I hope, I really hope that people will start to see, or already, or are already starting to see classics as something that relates to us rather than something lofty or inaccessible or something to be revered because it's just, it's just there. No, but I think, I think you've done a good job of, of that in Madame as well and the way that chapters are sort of broken up with these interludes of those stories of particular women and the way that you sort of explain that and then you have Rose explaining it to the girls during lessons and stuff I do think you make it more accessible and a bit of a jumping off point for people like Caitlin and myself who haven't really had that education but from this are like oh that's really interesting and I do want to see that why does that story then get replicated across, you know, modern things and stuff like that? So I think that you've done a really good job of, of bringing that in and making that accessible and making it not, you know, lofty or anything. Thank you for saying that. I'm really glad. It's interesting because when I, I wrote the book and those vignettes weren't, weren't there, it was the, it, like they came in at the editing stage, actually. Um, my two editors asked me to do them because for me, the, the lessons were enough. But then, you know, they were like, actually, I guess because you already know all of that stuff. Yeah. And and then, you know, they were like, hang on, just finish that story about Antigone. And and so we put these vignettes in 
people can skip past them if they like but I but I do like the way that they can tell that story succinctly and round it off properly in case and I have like a nice idea that you know I don't know my editors would want me to say this but I have a nice idea that people might tear them out and put them on their walls you know I don't know and um <laughs> you're not supposed to tear books but yeah and they are important to me because also what I've managed to do there I'm not sure how that spoke to you guys I'd love to know I put the original story in some way I could so there's a bit of Latin and then my translation yeah. and a bit of Greek and then my translation because I just wanted to be like you know we're serious here this is a these are real stories they really did exist you know and well the mythological characters you, you know what I mean the stories and the yeah. original story about these mythological characters Agrippina was a real person for example there are historical characters in there too but um I liked that there's a little bit of Latin a little bit of Greek in there and it made it feel like it was something that maybe had been a handout in the class. Like it, brings, yeah, like it kind of it brings so that to life. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> and I think yeah. like it's something from Rose's yeah. possessions that we yeah. get a glimpse into. Yeah. Um, like but also teaches us. Well, I've definitely yeah. written it in the way that she would have told the story or mm. I would have in the classroom. Yeah. And I think, for example, some of them are really significant to me. And, you know, the Medusa one, is she's a very popular feminist figure because she was so wronged um having been you know raped in um a temple and then punished for that and then slaughtered and then for example antigone is important to me because she's a young person who stands up to patriarchal values against them and wins which is what madam is about so she's like a an illusion to the girls and then daphne who doesn't want to be married or taken by Apollo chooses to be become a tree or asks her father to help her and he turns her into a tree and yet she's still in some way ravished by Apollo that is another sort of allusion to the students in there I don't think that's a spoiler so and I I really I was really interested in, in all of that that's how I chose those women so let's end on the dedication of the novel you've dedicated it to all the young women who've come into your classroom and who you've taught what are some of I guess the big lessons that you learned as a teacher and and what kind of have you taken away from your time in the classroom with those young women I think part of the reason I said cross the threshold was because um when you teach in boarding schools it's not the girls in the boarding house as well you get to know them in that way too and they come into your classroom all the time and I think I think it's really hard to be a young woman <laughs> I think that a lot of things against there's a, a lot that's going on in society that is against young women you know um magazine culture you know uh, there's so much and you know I I was teaching at the beginning of Facebook and having to choose a, a status and a, a profile picture and really those sort of things really moved me in the way that the girl's experience was changing and now continues to change I just think I just had such great conversations and so many great moments with young women and actually young men but I but madam is is for women really although I'd, I'd love to have male readers I have male readers who, who are brilliant and I think well what is gender anyway you know um but for example you know in the boarding house girls having issues with body image and trying to encourage them to accept their bodies in the shape that they were and things like that and so it was it was many years of that those kind of conversations where I learned just as much from them as they learned from me but when I was at school I don't know how it was for for you both but I was taught by men over the age of 50 I, I, I had one female teacher who I think taught PE and a bit of geography 
and we never saw her and I just I'm so glad now that teachers are getting younger I wish I'd been taught by somebody like myself or somebody like my peers because things would have been different and and I'm still in touch with a lot of my old students and it's been really interesting to have the transition from teacher to men there's like a stage where you're like a mentor for a bit <laughs> mm. and then you sort of become a friend that they touch base with and they you know they ask will you write my reference for my job interview or whatever and um yeah. I think that's just invaluable I'm so glad that I've been able to do that and I think there's a lot I've one of my old students has read Madam and she was like it's just unbelievable how how much there is in there of what was true and I think oh, I don't really know how to phrase it but I think I, try, I worked really, I've always worked really hard. And so did my, my peers, other young men and women that I worked with, it was, you know, just to, just to make those connections with children. Because life's, you know, it's, it's hard, as I say, I think it's getting harder for teenagers. And um, it's important to be a sounding board to listen, to engage with what they're saying, um, understand. Yes, I think I'll always cherish, I mean, I miss it. I really miss it. <laughs> And I'll always cherish, always cherish those years with them. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And you're right. I think it is so much harder. It's just getting harder and harder to be a teenager and to be a teenage girl. But with exactly. that, I think it's getting harder to be a teacher, you know, to be a teacher, work in schools, be in positions like that where you're working with young people. I think that's just getting harder and harder. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we're still subject, as we said earlier, we're still subject to the male gaze. And I think didn't Gloria Steinem say, we have to raise our sons like daughters and we don't do that yet like I have loads of amazing nephews I have one niece and even then I I, even then I try and talk to you know I'm a pesky auntie feminist and um you know I try not to be preachy or anything but but even then I can see I can see them some of the things they say they've adopted not their mother's or their father's prejudices uh, my sisters or my brother they they have uh you know it's just it's cool the world around them yeah the world, and it's scary. it's amazing what kids pick up from like from what their friends say from what they're hearing their friends parents and teachers and everything yeah incredible hundred thousand different directions in tv because i think people are getting so much more expressive now aren't they mm. and there's all these platforms where people can say great things but also there's a lot of like readily available hate around at the moment um that wasn't there when i was growing up you know yeah well i certainly like being on the receiving end of great teachers um i i definitely feel like i had the benefit of teachers who really really made the effort for me anyway like I'm such a nerd that environment and the environment they created is the reason that I love school so much and school to me felt like a safe space because of that um yeah so it's it's I I do think a, a good teacher like that does make all the difference and it's so good to hear that you maybe it's it's a shame that you didn't necessarily have no, that but then what's change that for exactly others. and I think when you feel the lack of something you work a little bit harder so that other people can have it and that's really true and um because having felt the lack of it you don't want them to feel that way that's definitely true oh well that's a nice note to end on yeah. thank you so much for joining us today it's, it's been really great Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> can you just let us know where people can find you online so they can follow you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Instagram um, as Phoebe Wynn Writes, but nobody can ever spell my name. So it's P-H-O-E-B-E-W-Y-N-N-E and then Writes. And then on in, on Twitter, I'm just uh, Phoebe Wynn. Excellent. And the book will be out in hardback very soon. Thank you for joining us, Phoebe. We had so much fun chatting. 
Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.